Well, it's good to be with you um, this morning. It's always good to be with you. Um, glad to, to fill in for, for Steve this morning. As, as we come to God's Word, um, and before I read the text, let me, let me just say um, a couple of things. That, as I was driving in this morning, I was reminded of the Apostle Paul's words from Philippians chapter 3, uh, where he said, you know, no matter what I've achieved in life, no matter how hard I've worked, no matter what I've done, um, whether in public life, in private, whether secular or sacred, especially in terms of uh, the um, religious zealousness that I've had, in terms of spiritual discipline, my piety and my walk with God, none of that matters compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All, all of that is garbage. It's rubbish. Because my identity is in Christ alone. And as a Christian, we want to say, like, yes, amen. Like, we want to echo that in our lives. Uh, and yet, we find it hard to live there. Because we're part of this daily grind, right? Every day we're grinding, we're grinding, we're grinding. Uh, we're grinding uh, to, in no matter what sphere of life, to show to others, no matter who they are, that we're worth something. Uh, this happens in, especially nowadays, on social media, where you, no matter what kind of post you have, uh, you want to think, um, you want ha- to have others think that you're funny or you're smart. Um, you're pretty, you know, you're likable. We have these Photoshop photos and not just ourselves, but of, you know, beach vacation sunsets and perfectly manicured like dinner plates. Um, we want people to think well of us, to, to like us, to accept us, to think, to think that we matter, that we're worth something. We, uh, we do this in terms of employee, employee, uh, employer, employee relationships. I, I remember growing up, the advice I got from my parents was, uh, when it comes to your work, you you need to you know work hard, pay your dues, uh, and show them that you're worth something. Prove your worth. We do that in all kinds of relationships. We do that as parents, uh, trying to to parent in a way and to live in a way where we show our kids that that we matter, that we're worth something, that that we're worth obeying, that we're worth loving and respecting. Um, as as children, uh, we do this. We we want for our parents to like us, to love us, to accept us. Uh, we try to meet even uh, sometimes unrealistic, unspoken expectations. We want to be accepted. We want to show them our worth. We do this in in marriages. We want to to show our spouse that we're worth loving, that we mean something, that we matter to the life of this family. And man, that is taxing. Uh, that, that is something we can get crushed under the weight of so easily, right? And it goes for any aspect of life, any relationship we have. We want to prove that we matter. And it causes this restlessness within our hearts. And we don't always live out of that identity in Christ. That's where we need to be. Let's see what our text um, might say. Uh, to, to us who are restless. Ezra chapter 3, I'll read the whole chapter. This is God's word. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had yet been laid. So they gave money to the, to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Codmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of his house, of this house being laid though many shouted aloud with joy, so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. It might seem to you that living in the woods on a riverbank would remove you from the modern world. But not if the river is navigable as is ours. On pretty weekends in the summer, this riverbank is the very verge of the modern world. It is a seat in the front row, you might say. On those weekends, the river is disquieted from morning to night by people resting from their work. This resting involves traveling at great speed, first on the road and then on the river. The people are in an emergency to relax. They long for the peace and quiet of the great outdoors. Their eyes are hungry for the scenes of nature. They go very fast in their boats. They stir the river like a spoon in a cup of coffee. They play their radios loud enough to hear above the noise of their motors. They look neither left nor right. They don't slow down for maybe even see an old man in a rowboat raising his lines. This is a passage from Wendell Berry's book, The Jaber Crow, where he speaks of the restlessness of people, that people are in an emergency to, re- to relax, an emergency to, to rest, because they're just worn out. We are worn out. 
What does rest look like for us? Rest can often look like or maybe feel like um, just being able to breathe in a marathon that we're running that none of us asked to run, uh, that none of us are are prepared for, none of us are trained for. Uh, We, like many people, want an escape from our labors, right? Uh, Maybe that escape looks like looking um, looking forward to leaving a stack of, of work papers on your desk and not taking them home. Uh, maybe that rest looks like being able to retire at a reasonable age so you don't have to continue in the rat race. Uh, maybe an escape from labors and rest looks like working for the weekend or a summer break or vacation. Uh, maybe that rest looks like spending a night out with friends uh, or going home and binge-watching The Great British Bake Off on Netflix or watching a game. Um, maybe... You're a mom, and rest looks like just spending five minutes going to the bathroom alone without a kid following you in there, right? We're restless. Russell Brand, who's a uh, he's a comedian. I don't recommend his comedy, by the way, um, but he gets this sense of, of restlessness. He uh, he said this. He said, I, "I don't wake up in the morning and think, wow, I'm on a planet in the Milky Way in infinite space." Bestow the gift of consciousness, which I didn't give myself, with a gift of language, with lungs that breathe and a heart that beats, none of which I gave myself. I feel love and pain and have senses. What a glorious gift. I can relate and create and serve others. What a phenomenal mystery. No, most days I just wake up and feel a bit anxious and plod a solemn, narrow path of survival coping. I say to myself, I'll have a coffee or... Maybe I'll try not to reach from my phone as soon as I stir, simpering, begging like a bad dog at a table for some digital tidbit, some morsel of approval, maybe a text that will do. Restless. And when we think about rest, especially in light of our work, no matter what that work is, we we want to get a break from uh, the fears, the anxieties, uh, the worries, the burdens, the tiredness that we constantly deal with in our labors. We want an escape from our labors because we think that it's the work that is causing the restlessness. It's not. Because then we stop working. Uh, Maybe you stop working because you are having a baby or you're raising a family uh, or you are retiring And then when you experience that season of not working, maybe just in a professional sense, you can start to wonder, is what I'm doing now matter? So why are we restless? It's not just, again, it's not just because work is bad. Work work is not bad. God made Adam and Eve and God put Adam in the garden to do what? To labor, to work. Work is good, right? So it's not that. No matter what it is, no matter what kind of labors we take up from being an engineer to a teacher to a mom uh, to a dad uh, to um, a pastor, we, we try to, we tend to justify ourselves through our work. We try to prove that we matter in our work. Now let me say this. We are busying ourselves to death. Okay? Uh, there is, um, there's a lot of clutter in our lives, but there's also a lot of good things that we have uh, that are, our schedules are so filled to the brim that we are killing our joy and our relationships and killing our kids because we're just so busy. But I gotta say this too, we're also killing our joy and relationships and our kids 
with trying to prove that we matter in our work, no matter what that work is. So how can we truly rest in our work that God has called us to, that he has designed us for? How can we rest in that work while we work if we are inherently always trying to prove that we matter? Or there's one solution. Augustine said it. He said, oh, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, right? That's the solution. It's a simple solution. It's a good solution. It's a very theological solution. And I don't like it. Because it seems too simple, right? It seems too theological. I know, of course, the answer is to rest in God alone, right? Of course. But honestly, I find it much easier to rest in a job well done. I find it easier to rest in a decent salary. Like, if you pay me enough money, I will rest in my work. Right? But we read Psalm 62, right? Our soul finds rest in God alone. Why? Because we were designed to only rest in God alone. So what, what, what's the main point? The main point is this, that when, as we have hearts that are restless, God responds to our, our restlessness with the gospel. He says, look, he says, the work that I have already done for you is what proves that you matter, that you are worth something. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit boldly proclaims to us that we matter. We don't have to prove that to anyone. We don't have to prove that especially to God. So our response to that work of God for us in the gospel is to rest in Him as we labor in or even outside our daily vocations. So two points this morning. Uh, what does that look or that rest look like? First, it's resting in God through engaged worship and then resting in God by living with hope. So resting in God through engaged worship. As we look at our text this morning, um, what we notice is that Israel's vocation was uh, to be a worshiping people. They were to be a priesthood of believers who offered not just spiritual but physical sacrifices to the Lord. They lived in a time of a sacrificial system. Right? You see this, um, uh, verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. Then verse 4. And they kept the feast of booze as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts, etc., etc. Right? They've built the altar of the Lord. They're offering all these sacrifices. And then later on in verse 10, they finally build the foundation, at least laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The altar was built before the temple was built. Before there was a place to worship God in the restored um, Israel community here coming out of exile, before they had that temple of the Lord, they had the altar. They're actively engaged in worship. Why? Because that is their job. That's their vocation. But if you're an Israelite, because you're in the sacrificial system, and especially given your context, your current context, you are going to be prone to try to prove that you matter to the Lord in your worship to Him. You're going to try to show your worth to Him. Why? Well, again, you're in the sacrificial system. You're off, you know, blood has to be shed for sin, right? 
to to be pleasing to the Lord, to be acceptable uh, to the Lord. But you think about their current context. There are people that are coming out of, of exile in Babylon because of generational sinfulness. So as they're offering these burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, what's probably going through a lot of their minds is, Lord, I, I hope... I hope that you accept me. I hope that this shows you that I'm worth something, that I matter. If I was an Israelite, that's probably what would be going through my mind and heart. But just two two notes with this. Um, two things. First is that even though this is probably the, what, what the heart of the Israelites are prone to in this context, we need to remember that, that God has already brought them back from exile because He loved them. Right? He already proved to them that he loved them, that he cared about them. They didn't have to prove anything to him. And secondly, these sacrifices, uh, the daily burnt offerings, through all the feasts, the Feast of Booze, etc., even the Day of Atonement, there was a special day when only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer this sacrifice of blood. Even all those things only covered and atoned for unwitting sins accidental sin. There was only one sacrifice that could be made that would cover willful sin. You know what it was? It was the death of the offender. The death of the offender. Worship was work in a very real sense for these people. It was, it was we see in our text, it was detailed. It was focused, right? It was time-consuming. It was resource-consuming. It engaged their head, their heart, their hands in such a way that it devoted attention uh, to coming to the Lord with a certain posture, rightly and reverently, repentantly, rejoicing. Worship was work for them. Worship is work for us, right? Uh, it's our vocation too. We are a priesthood of believers set apart by God and Christ and we still come to offer spirit, spiritual sacrifices to the Lord in worship. But here's the trap for us too is that we want to try to prove to God that we matter in our worship, that we're worth something. We're hoping that if we're sincere enough in our confessions of sin, um, if we sing loud enough or we sing beautifully enough, if we offer enough to God in our worship, then He will look favorably upon us. He already looks favorably upon us in Christ. That is our identity. See, when the church gathers in worship, we don't call God to, to come and meet with us, right? God calls us. He summons us to meet with Him. He's already present. Psalm 98 says this. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. It's God's work already done for us out of love that incites us to worship Him. We don't have to prove anything. So, so why all, why all the, the detail? Why, why all the liturgy and the pomp of, of, of the, the worship setting in Israel? Why all the liturgy and the pomp of our worship? Well, it's because worship is, is supposed to be solemn. But it's not the kind of solemnity that we think of. We think of solemnity as, as doom and gloom and oppression. C.S. Lewis spoke about this. He said, Solemnity in its truest form doesn't suggest gloom and oppression and austerity, but rather you have to think about a court ball or a coronation or a victory march as these things appear to people who enjoy them, or people put on gold and scarlet to be happy in. It's, it's a moment of rejoicing. It's a celebration. 
And yet we try to prove we matter in our worship. And here's why that makes no sense. is because, again, the reason God has invited us into his presence is because we matter. He already loves us. He's shown us that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So worship should be a time of joyful rest in the work of God for us. It's not static rest, right? It's dynamic rest. It's active rest. Now, there's a real need for engaging the Lord because it's not just about justifying ourselves. In verse 3, you see that these people engaged the Lord because they lived with, with a sense of fear. And so they felt their need for God. They, they had a fear um, from their adversaries who were going to, in the next, very, the next chapter, we see that they oppose the work of building the temple. There's no one who's on their side, right? And it's in times like this when, when you start to wonder, is God really good? Does he really care about me? You know, Lord, if you really love me, if you really care about me, why would you let some other foreigner oppose the work of the rebuilding of your temple? Why would you let us get to this point? It's very similar language um, to, one, to what we use, right, when we go through trials, but also the language of the, the Exodus community. Lord, why would you, if you really loved us, if you wanted to save us, why would you bring us out into the wilderness to die? We'd be far better in slavery in Egypt. We, we might not live in fear of enemies um, opposing us um, in our particular cultural context, but we have plenty of, of fears and anxieties to deal with. Um, many of us, maybe most of us, we try to, to leave the week that we had behind us, all the hard stuff behind, and we come to worship God. Um, but who are we kidding? We come with all those fears and anxieties and worries and failures. But we're supposed to. We're supposed to come to the Lord with those things. We can come, come into worship with, with the burden and fear of, you know, I'm working as hard as I can, but I don't know how much longer we can survive on this level, uh, level of income. And I don't know what, what other people will think of me, what my spouse thinks of me, what my children thinks of me if I can't provide. We come with anxieties like, I don't think I parented my children in a way uh, or any better than my parents parented me. I, and I probably have royally screwed them up. I wonder how much therapy they're going to have to have. I'm not sure if anyone appreciates the work I've done in this office, for this company, for this school, for this family, for this church. This is what we come with. We're restless. But we, we can't just rest in the Lord on Sundays. Our, our vocation is to rest in Him always. Peter in First Peter 5, he says in 6 and 7, he said, cast your anxieties on the Lord because He cares for you. Not so He'll care for you, but because He cares for you, you can go to Him. When the Lord calls us to worship Him, it's a summons from the dead. As one writer said, he said, we may not feel dead, but the truth is, is that we've been in the process of redying all week. The six days between Sundays can be more brutal and soul-killing than we realize. And we feel dead when we're burdened with fear and worry and doubts of all sorts. And when, we're, when we feel crippled with worry and, and fears and anxieties, sometimes it's very hard to be engaged in worship, right? So why worship then? Exodus 29 verse 43 says that it's actually at the altar of the Lord that he meets us. That's why this people, before they build the temple of the Lord, they build the altar and offer sacrifices to Him because at the altar of the Lord, the Lord meets them. So what does rest look like? When does fear and anxiety become alleviated? Are, are we supposed to feel different in worship 
um, after we we worship. Well, it's heart level rest, right? It, it's it's rest that looks like an increase in faith, maybe just an incremental increase. Right? Abraham and Paul says in, in Romans chapter four that Abraham, uh, his faith increased as he gave God glory. As he worshipped, then his faith in increased. Now, it's not like we're necessarily going to to um, going to leave worship and say, you know what, I feel like I could take on the world. Now, that may be true. Hopefully, like that, that is true. Um, we can go into our week with a certain boldness, but real rest may look like just incremental growth in faith, where where we take our identity in Christ into our week, and it may be small fruit, but it's fruit. It may look like just being a little more trusting in the Lord's care for us. That we don't have to, to, to work to prove our worth to Him. That we don't have to prove that we matter to Him. That He already loves us. Maybe it looks like being a little more unburdened by anxieties than we were last week. That's fruit. That's rest. Resting in God through engaged worship. But then secondly, resting in God by living with hope. And it's hope and promises fulfilled and promises yet fulfilled. This, this people of Israel in Ezra 3, they're, they're returning from exile, right? And they're broke. As someone that would get out of prison after a long sentence, right? What do you have to your name? You don't have anything. And so they don't have the funds, they don't have the resources to rebuild the temple. But Cyrus does, right? The king of Persia does. And God uses him. He, in verse 7, you see that Cyrus had made a decree to say, you know, whatever they need to rebuild, give it to them. There's hope in this partnership with, with a foreign power. It's not simply because they're a booster to support the work. But Cyrus is a functioning servant of the Lord. Here, here's why there's hope in this. It's because this is a fulfillment of a promise that God made in Isaiah chapter 60. I'm going to read it to you. He said, foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that they may bring to you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come, bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. God had fulfilled this promise in their midst that he would have mercy on them, that he would bring them back from their exile, that the wealth of nations would come to him, literally, come to them, literally, right? That trees from Lebanon would come to him. This is taking place in their midst. And why did God do this for them? It was an act of sheer grace. He did it out of love that was unmerited without anyone. No Israelite had to prove that they mattered enough to receive such blessing. It was grace. Now, if an Israelite is on the receiving end of a promise of God that is fulfilled in their midst, do you think that that might affect their work on a daily basis? Yeah, it's going to affect what they do. And we see it in, in, in verse 11, that they go about with a sense of joy. They work with joy. And they sing responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord as they lay the, the, the foundation of the temple. For He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It doesn't mean that all their problems are going to go away, right? Because the Lord fulfilled this promise. Uh, it doesn't mean that the problems that they face in their labors will go away. It doesn't mean that their adversaries will stop attacking them and opposing the work. But they will work resting in the care of God and the love of God and the grace of God. He has cared for them. He is caring for them. He will continue to care for him because they matter to him. You matter to him. They've built the the altar. Now they begin to lay the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And yet, for some, there seems to be something missing. Something that's not the same, even at the onset of the laying of the foundation. And you see this in verses 12 and 13. There's a promise that's yet fulfilled. The design of the temple was supposed to be just like the old. In fact, Cyrus, again, he said, you know, make the design specifications just as you want them. You have all the resources you need. But we get a sense from from places like Haggai chapter 2 that something was different about this temple. And you, in that, begin to get a sense of the restlessness. Maybe some of the materials didn't um, make the temple as beautiful as the old one was. Um, some commentators say that, that they think that it was probably a little bit smaller. It didn't look the same. Maybe their context had to do something with it. These, this people is not the same people. Um, their culture has changed a bit. Um, their language is not the same. Then in Ezra 7, when you see the temple of the Lord is completed, there's definitely something that's not the same. Is that Unlike what happened when Solomon finished the temple, in this reestablished temple in Ezra 7, the glory of the Lord does not come and appear before them. Whatever it was, something was off from the very laying of the foundation that made men weep. They longed for something more. They longed for something better. This caused restlessness. It caused fears and anxieties, burdens, They already knew that their sacrifices weren't good enough to fully take away their sin. The temple now is not good enough. They're not good enough. The restoration that they began to experience here in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the altar and the temple and then the city walls, some had an understanding that it was simply a partial fulfillment of the promises of God. They knew that they were made for something more. They knew that they were made for something better. Here's the trap. When you know that you're made for something better, your default, my default, is to prove that we matter enough to receive that better something. And that's the trap that they can fall into. That's the trap that we fall into. I need to prove to God that I'm, I'm, I'm worth whatever blessing He's going to give me. But grace is unmerited, Right? What was the something better that God promised? It was a gift from His hand, His work alone. You see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. I won't read it, but but what does Ezekiel 36 say? It's, it's a promise that God will come and make their hearts clean. He will make them a clean people. He will sprinkle them. He will take away their sin. And He will give them a new heart, a heart of flesh. And He will give them the Spirit. He will put His Spirit within them none of which was deserved, right? None of which they had to prove that they mattered to get. And God made good on that promise. 
Right? He made good on that promise. The old temple, right? This temple that they, that they, they built was one day going to fall, but there was a new temple that God was making with His own hands. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Look, it, it, just like the Israelites, if we are the, on the receiving end of this promise of God fulfilled in our midst, how do you think that that should affect our work and our labors? No matter what they are, whether it's being a parent or being an engineer or an accountant or a teacher or a spouse or a friend. It doesn't mean that all the problems that we face in life are going to go immediately away, right? We still live in a broken world. Doesn't mean that the problems that we face in our labors are going to go away, but we're going to work with a sense of joy. We can work with a sense of joy because we have already been given infinite worth having an identity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to prove that we matter to God. We don't have to prove that we matter to our next door neighbor. I don't have to prove that I matter to my children. I matter. They matter. You matter. We matter because Jesus has, has spilt His blood for us and was raised for us and ascended in heaven for us. That's what gives us worth. And yet there's still some promises that we have not yet fully realized. And that can make us restless. We labor in this world. We, we labor in life. We labor in our vocations and we weep. Just like those men, we weep for the day when we will receive that better something. We weep for the day when sin will be no more, even though we know Jesus has taken away the power and, and judgment, the reign of sin that we sang about. We, we weep for that one day, someday, promise us when we're not going to be frustrated and burdened uh, by sin and by the, the toil of the labor of our hands. Every tear is going to be wiped away. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the former things will have passed away. That is the better something that we will receive one day, someday. And we now can patiently rest in God. We can rest in Him in the hope of the promise that is yet fulfilled no matter the circumstance that we're in. Because God keeps His promises and He never forsakes his children. Remember the song that they sang. For though he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And we receive his blessing. And we can't prove our worth to him to receive it. He just gives it to us. We're never able to prove our worth to him. The only thing that we've actually proved to him is that we're not worthy of his grace. We're worthy of judgment. And yet he gives us love. And eternal life. So how does the hearing of the gospel affect the week that you enter into? Um, how does, how does that affect your work? Do you enter into your work saying, I, I don't know what's going to happen this week. I, I don't know um, how it's going to go. I don't know what problems will be resolved or problems I'll, I'll face, but I know that the Lord is good. I know that He cares about me, that He delights in me, that His Spirit is in me, that I am the temple of the Lord so I can rest in Him. Can we do that this week? Again, in Christ, you are the temple of the Lord, so you can rest in Him wherever you are, whatever it looks like for you to labor with the gifts that God has given you, where He has placed you. You don't have to wait for the weekend to rest, um, uh, you know, because you know it's just going to be another manic Monday, right? Um, 
and Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> and the weekend is always not, not, not always that restful, right? You don't have to wait for summer you know, vacation. You don't have to wait for cooler temperatures. <laughs> we can rest in Him. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. Can we go into this week knowing that God delights in us and we don't have to prove anything to Him? There's a, a, a new, last thing I'll say, there's a, a new retuned version of Psalm 124. And it goes like this. It says, Our shackles crumble under the weight of His delight. Oh, taste His sweet affection. The Lord is by your side. Creation sings His promise. We'll dance in crowns of light. The feast is set before us. The Lord is by our side. Blessed be our God and King. He has rescued us. Into His arms we give ourselves, for we are His great love. For His great love, He delights in us. Let's rest in Him. Would you pray? O Lord, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your steadfast love for people like us. Uh, Lord, we ask that You would uh, calm our restless hearts uh, that try to prove that we're worthy, uh, we're prove, to try to prove that we're worthy of Your love. Uh, Lord, show us that um, we can never earn Your love, and yet You give it to us. You give us life. You give us the righteousness of Christ. You give us Your Spirit to to lead us, to uh, to remove the, what is left of sin, remnant sin, to make us look more like Christ. Would we not fear the approval of others? Would we not be anxious about what others are thinking about us and the worth that they ascribe to us, but rest in our identity in you, in you alone? Where that is our prayer, um, we're tired souls that need the good care of our good God. Would you do that for us this week? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.